Hi, welcome to the new episode of Foam Talks. Themed around the latest magazine, Motherland, the transnational issue, we will be discussing the political power of images and how they shape our understanding of the world. My name is Elisa Medde. I'm the editor-chief of Foam Magazine, and today I will be joined by Federica Chiocchetti, director of Musée des Beaux-Arts du Locle and curator of the L Circuit at this year's Paris Photo. I'm so happy you found the time to join me today to have a chat about images. How are you doing? Well, thank you so much uh, for this invitation. I would always find time for you. Uh, I'm a bit sick, so probably people will notice it from my uh, voice, but I'm trying to survive. Let's put it that way. <laughs> It's nothing major, but you know. It's always annoying when you have to work to be Yeah, it's cold season. No, but also, I mean, I know you're always so busy. And since you took on uh, the new position as the director of uh, the museum at Le Locle, you've been extremely busy with organizing things and finishing up uh, all the collaborations. I know you've been working with Salvatore Vitale for MUST recently. Um, you will be presenting a great exhibition at Paris Photo. Well, at the time of recording, it, it's going to be in a few weeks, but when this episode will be released, the exhibition will be on. So I'm very, very excited uh, to go there and see it in person. Yeah, I mean, I need to make a um, correction in the sense that it's not really an exhibition in the traditional form as such. So it's not like one room with all the women um, uh, oh, photographers. That's wonderful. Tell me more. Tell me more. I selected in one place, as you would expect an exhibition. It's more like a parcours, so like a path, a circuit. So each woman is at her own uh, gallery's booth. But thanks to the plan, to the map, you will be able to navigate the fair and discover the... 77 female photo artists that I've selected, but also they will all be together on the printed uh, pages of the dedicated publication. So somewhere they will be together um, in a book form, not in, in one single place, uh, but scattered all over the fair. Um, All right. So just to give some context to our listeners, you've been uh, curating this special project with Elle for Paris Photo. Uh, that consists in 77 artworks from female photographers that are present at the, at the fair. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's, um, it's the fifth uh, anniversary of this special project, which is called LX uh, Paris Photo. Uh, it's supported by the Ministry of Culture and uh, Caring Women's in Motion. And it's really the idea to um, highlight um, photo works by a female um, artists at the fair. So that was my first big constraint in the sense that I have to work with a material that is kind of given. I, I could not right. include 
female artists that were not at the fair. Mm -hmm. But um, what I did for the first time was to kind of ask, <laughs> and when I ask, it's never really a question, it's, <laughs> it's often a rhetorical question, uh, to extend the, the circuit also to the publisher's sector, because in the past it was only um, in the main sector of galleries, because I realized while doing the research that um, for a woman photo artist today is at times easier to publish a book than to be represented by a gallery in the market. So I thought that if we didn't include the publishers, we would have missed out a lot of amazing makers. Yeah. Um, and it's also good to give recognition to a platform in its own right. Yeah, and also for me, a book is an artwork um, in its own right. So um, it was kind of a visceral, almost like spontaneous uh, request uh, that I had. So the, the carte blanche uh, that I was given uh, and the trust by the Paris Photo team, the director, Florence Bourgeois, that I really thank for her openness, um, allowed me to really do uh, whatever I felt uh, appropriate. And because it's the 25th anniversary of the fair, and to be honest with you, after some thoughts and reflections, I was kind of tired to come up with themes, themes, themes. And because as curators, we're always like obsessed with finding the good theme for an next exhibition, an issue for a magazine. And for once I was like, okay, let's, move away from the theme thing and let's come up with more like a symbolic number. My practice is always informed by literature and I was inspired by the Oulipo, uh, the, the French um, group Ouvroir de Littérature Potentielle of writers and mathematicians that used to impose, uh, and, and actually still nowadays, because the group is amazingly still active, mathematical rules uh, to writing, which seems quite bizarre, but actually, you know, they created some really amazing books uh, under um, that, let's say, movement. Uh, and so I needed a symbolic number, and I really work a lot with association of ideas that just knotting the dots and ideas that just come out spontaneously one after the other. And because it's a circuit, it's a path, so you have to navigate, you have to move through the fair to discover the artists and the, the Caring's program that supports it is called Women in Motion. I remember that in the Napolitan uh, game, board game called Tombola, the number 77 is associated with women's legs as if they had to be long and thin. Uh, but also uh, because the tombola is also inspired by the smorfia, which associates a number to a dream, uh, in order then to to help people play the 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 lotto, the bingo, yeah, the bingo. It's not just women's leg. The same number is also associated with the devil. So that made me so much like it made me laugh, but also it was like a bitter laughter. And and then I thought that. Actually, behind a uh, apparently innocent number, there was a sort of like 
uh, remnants of a patriarchal society uh, that, you know, see like the demonizing women and that also made me think about all this um, epoch of the witch hunters uh, and the book by Silvia Federici, Caliban and the Witch, that was so much uh, inspiring uh, throughout my research. Um, and so I had, uh, I had this number that in a way needed to be rehabilitated somehow. And also uh, 1977 in Italy was an important year for the feminist movement. So I was like, okay, I'm going to select uh, 77 female artists at Parifoto. Um, we need and, to reclaim. Uh, yeah, to kind of like de decolonize <laughs> and, and in a sort of like shamanic attempt to return some kind of positive vibes to this, um, to this number. And then it was really like uh, a blast because... I actually approached galleries before the deadline to encourage them to apply with um, uh, females uh, artists project. And hopefully that has uh, a little bit like increased or um, encouraged them uh, to, uh, let's say, make some uh, uh, alterations per, uh, in, in comparison to the previous years. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, I think. Again, I mean, I think Parifoto has changed over the years, but it will be interesting indeed to see how much an invitation to feature female and female-identifying artists or anyways a larger representative attention. Notion. Yeah. yeah. To, to, to what kind of photography is presented in a commercial setting and to a certain type of commercial audience and collecting audience. It will be very interesting to look at that. Yeah. And then, yeah, inevitably you realize that even if you don't look for specific themes, um, it's quite uh, embedded in your DNA to have research interests. So after I had made the selection, I realized that actually, oh, there are quite a few uh, artists that are related to performance or there are quite a few artists that are politically engaged. In a way, it's, it's coincidence and it's not. Uh, it's just uh, that I spontaneously am inclined to be fascinated by those mm. kind of projects. Did you, did you find that um, the presence of artists identifying as females or non-binary in general um, was, was improved, was, was higher compared to previous edition? Uh, it's kind of a tough question because, uh, you know, it's to have the exact answer we would have to ask the fair, to ask the galleries, to ask the artists to identify themselves. And uh, that is certainly something that can be done uh, in the future. But uh, of course, there is some information that uh, I, 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 I know because, because I know because I know the artist and, and, uh, and I'm aware of um, uh, yeah, or all the, the, the kind of like spectrum of uh, uh, gender identity that they associate with. But uh, there was no 
more kind of like objective uh, way to to learn this mm. information. So okay. some artists that I've never met uh, in my life, uh, I have no idea how they yeah, identify. Of course. So, um, and, and it would be very interesting um, to know, actually. But besides, um, of course, focusing and paying attention to gender, I know you, you've historically been very keen and interested in, in feminist politics, and, and, but in general, in the political power of images and the politics of images. This is something that has been present in pretty much every project you've embarked with. Um, and I would like to quote a sentence Uh, coming from your text uh, about the exhibition we were just mentioning, about the El Exferi Photos uh, 77 images. You say at a certain point, keep a vigilant eye and be suspicious of numbers, words, and above all, images. I was wondering if you can tell us more about being suspicious about images and how, how, you, how you relate yourself um, with them. Yeah, that's such a like an existentialist, <laughs> huge fundamental question, I know. and I'm sorry. I've already spent nine years on it. <laughs> I always PhD, bring so. my guests in <laughs> this very nerdy and abstract conversation. No, but I, I, I wish uh, you know, it, I wish I, I had the time to research and give you a super proper answer. So I'll, I'll try to do my best, but. We have seen so much uh, how much images can be instrumentalized, um, appropriated, abused, um, and they can be really the conveyors of propaganda. One of the books that I have researched in the past, The War Primer by Brecht, was precisely about that, uh, uh, trying to uh, decolonize, deconstruct uh, the propaganda scaffolding that was behind the surface of, of the image. And he did that with um, by juxtaposing poetry uh, to the images. Yeah, I believe that an image in itself um, cannot be intrinsically ist. You know, the, 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 the suffix ist is always like associated with some kind of ideology, you know, feminist, racist, sexist. Um, nationalist. I think it's a lot uh, about the context of circulation of images, uh, who is using it and how to say what. Uh, so I'm very prudent and I prefer not to be trusting images in any direction, neither uh, towards, you know, the naive optimism of documentary photography that, you know, but if that photographer didn't go to that place, we wouldn't have any images and we wouldn't know, we wouldn't be able to see those things. Which is quite a problematic approach. Which is quite a problematic approach, as you say. But also, uh, you know, the to the very other uh, extreme opposite where images are uh, completely dangerous because they are trying to seduce us. Uh, if we think about advertising, 
which is probably the, the, you know, the most toxic environment where images and texts have been combined together in the past to lobotomize us and, and make us think that we have needs, commercial needs, and that that product is going to make us happy, basically, so that we end up buying it. So... Yeah, I'm very suspicious of images. I love images, but uh, I'm I'm kind of afraid of them. In a not necessarily in a spooky Halloween way, given it's the 31st of <laughs> October, uh, but more like I'm I'm afraid of how they will be interpreted by everyone, really, uh, and so at the beginning when I started my research about photo text, I thought. Uh, like Benjamin and Brecht, you know, that's why the photographer has to put such a caption to rescue the images from the ravages of modishness. I know the sentence by heart because it was really at the core of the founding of my platform and, 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 and my PhD. But, but then I've learned that I'm also suspicious of words because words uh, juxtaposed to images can be as fictional as departing from the truth and as uh, conveying propaganda as much as the images. So there is really no neutral space. Uh, it's all a matter of the eyes, the background, the mind, the heart, um, the soul, and the vision of the spectator that receives these images and then activates them. It, it's a sentence that actually it's in Seeing Sense uh, in a chapter by Victor Bergen from 1986 where he says that, an, what I said before, that an image cannot be intrinsically racist. It's our informed eyes that have a notion of what racism is and the multiple forms of it that can read that ism in the image, but it's not in itself intrinsically born as such. I think it's very interesting to unpack the relation that happens between the author and the viewer, right? Because the author inevitably puts a certain set of wishes, choices, the non-neutrality of an image, right? There is always something infused in that image. And then whenever that image is seen or experienced, there is a tension that happens between these two ends. And this tension is mediated by many aspects, the way you experience work, the way it circulates, blah, blah, blah. But then there's always one factor, that's visual literacy. And visual literacy is this huge big bubble of ideas and thoughts and, and it's really you know, a universe of uh, points of view and notions that inevitably every now and then gets packed and unpacked. Sometimes there's too much visual literacy and you cannot really direct the way an image is experienced. Sometimes there's too little. And I was wondering what's your opinion or what's your relation with visual literacy? How, how do you see that plays a role? Uh, it depends how we define it, because if we are talking about the fact that images sometimes, in some part, are also experienced in a non-linguistic way, 
I still have not a definitive opinion on that because uh, somehow I tend to agree with the idea that even an uncaptioned art photograph uh, on the gallery wall, when it is looked at, it is invaded by language because we tell ourselves um, a kind of story uh, while we are scanning the photographic surface. I still think that there are some elements that our retinas grasp that don't necessarily go through the language process and so this kind of like story internal monologue storytelling inner voice whatever and and so if we consider visual literacy a mixture of that of non-linguistic like purely visual digestion let's say plus intertextuality because obviously when we see an image uh, it's like when we look for a definition of a word in a dictionary, we open the dictionary and there is always another word which takes us to another word and then another word and then another word. Is this like this chain of signify that uh, Ferdinand de Saussure talks about. I think that also can be traced in, uh, especially nowadays, because... Uh, photography was officially invented in 1839, although we know it was a bit earlier. So we have now this kind of critical mass of images that has been made so far that sometimes even if we wish to forget it, it's impossible to forget it. So when we look at an image, there are some non-linguistic elements and plus there is this visual intertextuality of past images that we saw before. So I see visual literacy as a combination of these two elements, but that's only my personal definition. I don't know if there is a more scientific one, and I'm sure there is. So I think it's very difficult to, um, to generalize about visual literacy because it's so dependent on access to culture, to images, to... Um, so, and, and so, and inevitably, so it's definitely not something that can be by any way democratic. So visual literacy is, is, a, is a privilege. It's a privilege that um, highly cultivated, uh, visually exposed people that have access to the internet, which we take for granted today, but there are still geographical areas where it doesn't reach there. So, yeah, I see, I see vis visual literacy as a, as a privilege. Do you think it should be taught in schools? I remember when I was a kid in Italy, we did have some sort of visual literacy classes, Lucky um, you, I don't know where you studied. At the elementary school, there was this, this class that was called in Italian Educazione all'immagine, okay, image wow. education. So to say, it was a very normal public school, but there was this, this class that basically sort of tried to teach, but mainly expose kids to composition, um, you know, the way color works, the way the, the dynamics of elements within the image can be read to tell a story. It was extremely basic, but they do have this memory uh, when I was a kid. And then it was crap, of course. Uh, it was taken away from 
from uh, from the yeah, end. So- sounds heaven where you studied. I, I didn't have that class, but uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's super important, and there are amazing initiatives that imply education project educational projects for for children in that sense. Um, really like the. The idea of learning how to look uh, at something. But then again, it depends uh, because it's a privilege, but because as every discipline, it depends on who is behind it, who put it together, the syllabus, for example, because we could also create damage by teaching a certain type of visual literacy. So before we package it and teach it to uh, children, are we sure that it's, you know, democratic, inclusive enough that really reflects the spectrum of uh, diversity uh, in the history of our planet? Uh, I don't know. It's a challenging task. Uh, yeah. Totally worth it. Before we started to record this episode, myself and Federica were talking a bit about this, these matters, of course, and we mentioned a quote that I have in the theme text of the current issue for magazine Motherlands. And in that text, I quote Susie Linfield, and basically she says, you know, it, it really, you can't pretend images to do the work for you. Um, you can't pretend images to change anything. It depends on what happens after we see the images and how we act. And I was wondering, I, I keep on thinking about this moment. What happens after we see an image, whether it's an image that disturbs us, whether it's an image that infuriates us, uh, whether we love it, whether, you know, whatever is the spectrum of emotion or intellectual triggers that a specific image stimulates, what happens right after? And it's a very personal question and it could be very big or it could be very small, but I was wondering how is it with you, with your relationship with images what 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 happens to you how you how you relate to them after you see them i have two uh answers to that so in a way i think that some work experiences have kind of i i i used to work at the archive of modern conflict which for those who don't know this incredible crazy amazing space um my retinas have been raped by images of so much disturbing things going on, uh, death. Um, not, so conflict is just really like in a, in a broad sense uh, that after that, I think that, you know, what Susan Sontag says, I saw it happened on me as well, that you kind of like... Not that big, you, you sort of like become used to these kind of images, but also uh, disturbingly fascinated by them to the point that if nothing weird in an image is happening, there was a moment that I, I wasn't even interested in the image. And I felt that that was deeply wrong because, you know, there are amazing images of uh, banal moments of uh, everyday life that need also to be celebrated. But also, in a way, I think uh, sometimes it's a sense of frustration. So after I, I see 
specifically some disturbing images on the environmental crisis that we are causing every day. You know, there are issues that are so beyond our control that, yes, we as individual beings in our everyday life, we can contribute by following all the rules, by, you know, signing up to any kind of organization that we believe will, you know, advocate enough and, and lobby enough as to eventually change the law, sign all the petitions that we want. But there are some some issues that unfortunately are i feel personally that are beyond our control and so sometimes is a sense of frustration and that but obviously i don't want to stay with this sense of frustration so i always try to to find counter narratives and and approaches to somehow feel that you know as much as i can i'm i'm contributing against that very thing that upset me that i saw in in an image yeah. and then there are some wonderful you know examples of how um some artistic projects trigger some changes in politics uh for example the the I've always been a deep admirer since the very early days of forensic architecture that you also feature in, in the magazine, uh, especially Forest Law by Paolo Tavares was mind-blowing when it came out. Yes. And like to learn that nature for the first time was represented in a tribunal uh, as a kind of like victim and not just uh, because, you know, to the present, only if there was an, uh, some human beings involved in something Uh, it could be. It will reach court. Yeah, exactly. So when these kind of projects uh, happen, and this is what in economics is called positive externalities. So when an artwork in in, in macroeconomics is more like a policy uh, in the system, but in, in in what I when if if I apply the concept uh, in in the art world, it's when an artwork actually. Uh, engenders some positive externalities into the system, into the into society. That is quite uh, not that frequent as we wish, but it's quite mind blowing when it happens. Yeah, and I'm thinking. I mean, I know I've been knowing you for many years now. I'm thinking, how does that apply to your? position at Le Locle, for example. I'm very curious to come over and see the Ignacio Acosta show that just a few days ago, a week ago, just opened. And I know, I know you'll be very active in this sense, in just trying to create space and platforms for these conversations. Uh, would you like to, to, to tell me something about, about this program or about the current show and what's going to come next? Sure, thank you. Yeah, le, at the Musée des Beaux-Arts du Locle, MBAL, <laughs> to simplify uh, for those who are not francophone, um, uh, we are currently uh, showing a series of uh, exhibitions dedicated to water and uh, ecology. Uh, it's a programming that I've... The main artist, the exhibition was programmed by the former director, Edward Burtinsky and which links precisely with what we were discussing before, uh, whose uh, work on water has been circulating since 2014. Yes. 
and those are like quite pictorial, sublime tableau uh, of you know images around that denounce the aquatic uh, contamination and what uh, as humans uh, have we have been inflicting on uh, on nature and in terms of like stealing water for all sorts of purposes and so uh, when I arrived, I, uh, I still had space for including uh, one more artist, actually two. Uh, so one was from, because the idea is always to create a dialogue between the permanent collection, uh, which is uh, quite strong in uh, 19th century and, and, and up to mid 20th century uh, paintings and works on paper. So I selected a Swiss painter that uh, we host the, the foundation in, in the museum. His, his name is uh, Lermite. Uh, he died in 1977, so it was also the anniversary of the, of the death. And he has a very kind of geometrical approach of landscape. And he was also fascinated by human intervention on, on landscape at the time. And then I uh, invited to Ignacio Acosta, to, to a Chilean artivist, if we can use this term, who is really working uh, with uh, local communities, uh, activists, and trying to subvert technological equipment and, and notions of power and extra extractivist capitalism to denounce... Um, the situation in countries such as uh, Chile, where he's originally from, but also uh, Scandinavia. He's been working with Sami people uh, using drone technologies and, and camera traps. And for this, uh, for our show, uh, it, it linked perfectly with the theme of uh, of water because. In Chile, there is this real load where, obviously introduced during the Pinochet dictatorship, where you are owner of the land, but you're not owner of the underground. Uh, so no mm. matter who can come and explore the mineral resources that are underneath your property. And so there is this private park, which is huge, Parque Andino Juncal, uh, and go from the glacier to uh, really the river, uh, who's owned by this ecological activist, and he's really trying to, you know, keep it, uh, keep the ecosystem as diverse and in good shape as possible. But then uh, his territory is invaded by this mining exploration by all sorts of like companies and they arrive and they put this monolith to mark the era where they are exploring the the, the resources underground and so Ignacio Acosta spent a month there to emerge what all the threats to this uh, ecosystem are um, currently attacking uh, attacking it by using uh, camera traps, drones, but also by collaborating with uh, activists that are monitoring what these mining companies are doing. And some of them are even going beyond the law because, yes, the law says that you can explore, but, for example, you cannot uh, attach yourself to a natural resource of water, and sometimes they are doing it. Okay. So it's, it's really... 
it's really important because this is happening now and all the activists that have collaborated with him have received death threats. And thanks to, to his work, which is um, beautifully presented as a, a two-screen video installation, hopefully this, uh, because these are also activists that uh, are, are credited as co-authors of the work and that will be using the, this piece uh, to, uh, in, in their, because they're they are pursuing um, those companies in, uh, in the tribunal. So they are, it's really like a, a mutual support between the artists and the activists to really try to stop these abuses uh, to the ecosystem of this park. Just a, a, a long uh, response, but for the future, uh, we have uh, a lot of beautiful projects coming up. The next one, uh, and I'll probably focus on that one very briefly, is about reading. Wow. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, and to, probably to your surprise. And it's, uh, it's really an homage to, to reading. It's an homage to women. And it's called The Pleasure of the Text. It starts because I um, not only, of course, I'm a deep passionate of the relationship between images and words, but also I found in the permanent collection of the museum a lot of paintings of women reading, which led me to that famous book. In, in French, the title is uh, Les femmes qui lisent sont dangereuses. Women readers are uh, dangerous. Uh, it's, a, of course, a, a provocation. <laughs> we are all are <laughs> dangerous, indeed. And so the idea is to show uh, those amazing paintings, uh, but also invite contemporary artists and photographers to, uh, that have also explored the themes uh, of, uh, of reading and of the uh, verbal invasion of the image uh, to, the, to the permanent collection. And we, we are going to be uh, working with uh, Melissa Catanese, Sarah Nelman, Luca Massaro, hopefully Leonora Barros. So I really look forward. Wow. Uh, the vernissage is uh, at the end of March uh, 2023. All and right. I really look forward to that. And after that, it's going to be dedicated to uh, the animal instinct. So all sorts of like projects that either explore the animal gaze or our problematic relationship uh, between us humans and uh, animals. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing these, these, these tips also for the further programming in, in Le Locle. It's definitely it's going to be worth a visit and only to see you by the city shows. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for And to the next. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foam Talks. You can find the latest issue of Foam magazine Motherlands, the transnational issue, at the book section of Paris Photo from the 10th until the 13th of November at the best bookshops around the globe or online on our website foam.org. Keep an eye on our social media for the upcoming episode and thank you always for supporting us. Viva! Viva!